Hello, and welcome to Chatty AF, the Anime Feminist Podcast. My name is Tony. I'm a contributing editor at Anime Feminist. And with me are Caitlin and Annie. Did you want to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Caitlin. I am one of the editors at Anime Feminist, as well as a writer at Anime News Network. Um, I am still on Twitter, the website that I continue to dead name. And <laughs> as... Altsoon underscore Nodere. Uh, same thing on Blue Sky, although I haven't fully made that transition yet. Um, so yeah, happy to be here. Um, hi, I'm Annie, uh, and I guess I'm also on Twitter, and I will continue to call it that as Miss Fawn Learns. Uh, when I'm not working in education, I am probably watching anime or reading webcomics, and I'm also happy to be here. And we're here today to talk about Vinland Saga, um, an anime that came out in spring 2023 and really just, I think, blew a lot of people away with um, its storytelling and with the drastic change in tone um, that it took from season one to season two, going much more in depth into themes about um, enslavement, anti-war work, um, nonviolent resistance, um, and just generally how a person lives a good life. So we're going to be talking about all that um, in just a sec. This is going to be a two-part podcast. Part one is going to focus mostly on kind of the idea of nonviolent resistance and how it shows up in Vinland Saga and in our lives. And then part two is going to be more about um, the, the abolitionist themes that it has. Um, but for the first um, bit of time... Um, we're going to be talk- doing a relatively spoiler-free um, discussion of our general impressions um, and feelings about the show. Caitlin, did you want to get us started with kind of your thoughts about the show? What was your first reaction to it, like season one and season two, and like what your relationship is to the series? Because I have been kind of on a journey with this show when I watched the first episode in what 2019 i wasn't sorry i loved the first episode i loved the themes that it was laying out there um the abolitionist anti-slavery themes the the emptiness of violence that uh thor's was feeling that he just walked away from and then as the season went on there was a lot of wow cool violence that just i wasn't connecting with you know i could see the the thread of the narrative but there was just so many and now the viking does the crazy move and everyone in the room hoots and hollers so i probably would have dropped the series way before the first season ended and then the second season comes along and it starts off with the protagonist, Thorfinn, really laid low in ways that I'm not going to go into because we want to have a relatively spoiler-free discussion. But all of the first, the violence of the first season is just gone. It is, um, you know, Thorfinn is in a completely different place. He's not a warrior anymore. And the theme switched over to how the violence of the first season was really just leaving him spiritually impoverished and empty inside, just like in the first episode. And so then I was really into it. But the funny thing is a lot of fans of the first season, and this isn't the people I was watching with, they were all on board for all of the themes and the character progression and all of that but a lot of fans of the first season were really upset because <laughs> they were like where's the cool vikings fighting each other where's the guy who throws an axe and like chops off five people's head in its trajectory or whatever i don't remember if that's something that actually happened and i'm just like no you fools you don't get it. You don't understand. Isn't it so nice having a series that is staunchly anti-slavery when slavery is super common in anime these days? Mm-hmm. 
isn't it so nice having something that has actual values? And a bunch of people are like, no, I want to see some Vikings murder each other in really cool ways. So that is kind of my uh, summation of my relationship with the series. I didn't care for it when it was really violent and gory, but it pulled me back in when it stopped being so. Great. Annie, did you want to tell us a little bit about your relationship with the series? What was your first impression? Then, like, how did you feel as it moved on and changed? I watched season one fairly recently. Um, Just kind of was trying to think through different ways to explore and extend my uh, typical go-tos in terms of anime genres. And I was wanting to dig a little bit more into the seinen category and looking at anime that's more marketed towards young men in Japan at least and so Vinland Saga kind of came across my way as something that people kind of said is part of the big three you know with um I think it's Vagabond and Berserk but people said that Vinland Saga even out of those three distinguished itself with this um, anti-violence message um so I thought I'd give it a shot. I really enjoyed season one. Um, I love a battle shonen, and I really feel like season one was much more of a battle shonen. Um, and part of it is like I enjoy really good fight choreography. I really liked how with season one of Inland Saga, um, the violence was certainly gratuitous, but it also felt like it was situated in a larger cultural context. Um, I think Yukimura Sensei does a really great job, like – Using this idea of uh, Viking era Europe as an allegory for kind of, you know, universal themes around violence. Um, but that said, I was also really looking forward to see how the tone would shift because everyone was like, oh, my gosh, Farmland Saga, you know, looking online, the farmland arc is incredibly diff- different. A lot of people are going to drop off. A lot of people are going to hate it, but it's just so good. So for me, season two was definitely a tonal shift and I was excited, but also like, huh, like it is so drastically different that I was definitely curious about how it would pay off. And by the time you get to the latter half of um, season two, I just think it's like incredible. And I totally see how it, it's set up by the the gratuitous and unending violence of, of season one. I think by the time you get to like key pivotal moments in season two, um, you have a much more, a broader understanding, I think, of what violence is beyond, you know, physical violence and warfare, which I think is really fascinating. Um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty much how I'm oriented to it. I think about it all the time. I miss Askeladd, but season two has been lovely. I think I had a similar reaction more to Caitlin, partly just because I don't like very much Battle Shonen. Like, typically, I'm, like, not super into that. Like, I think the the Battle Shonen... The Battle Shonen that I tend to like tend to be ones that actually have this critique of violence, especially critique of state violence and um, that are built into them. So, like, shows like um, uh, Chainsaw Man is, like, one of my faves. I, I um, like... I like Doro Hedoro. I know that's not a Battle Shonen, but it is a Battle Show. But anyways, um, when I, I really only started watching Vinland Saga because I saw James Beckett's reviews on ANN about how just amazing the show was. And like, I was like, okay, I'll check this out. And similar to Caitlin, I found the first season to be dragged on a little bit. But the second season, I think there was almost not a single episode that didn't make me cry. <laughs> which is, like, definitely saying something. And I thought that the show had some really interesting and sophisticated ideas about, like, the philosophical nature of love and violence and the what it means to create, like, actually, like, meaningful community with other people. Um, and also I found that there were times when I was watching it and I as an organizer or as somebody who's like done anti-violence work, I found myself like questioning, like it, do I agree with the show's ideas about violence? And it became a really interesting, like kind of place for me to kind of sit every week watching it and think like about what I really believe in and like, what are my commitments as both an educator and as a, um, like just a person living their life. And uh, we'll get more into that in a bit, but it 
I I think I've come down on a point where I really, really love this show. Um, even if I don't always agree with it, I think that it, it lays out it's like Thorfinn's arc is so compelling. Um, watching him become the kind of hero I would want to root for when in the first season, he's really just this kind of like a traumatized edgelord, you know, killer (laughs) is really compelling. And any other thoughts before we go ahead and move on to um, the spoiler cast? <laughs> I mean, I think the only thing that I would add is that in my mind, I've been really seeing a parallel between Vinland Saga, especially season one, to um, Attack on Titan, which to me also yes. feels like another like gratuitous violence edgelord, you know, protagonist who set out on vengeance. But the the shift in season two... Um, really, I don't know, there's just a lot to say there about like kind of the prominence of these kinds of narratives. I think a lot of people came into the show uh, expecting Attack on Titan, but with a blonde character instead. And I think it's a profoundly different show, which I think is really worth digging into. Caitlin, I know you have thoughts on this. <laughs> I mean, I, I haven't engaged with Attack on Titan in so long, man. Like, but yeah, I think that is fair. You know, I'm not because I'm not saying that Attack on Titan doesn't have themes, but all of those themes are presented through this lens of violence. And like Tony, I prefer Battle Shonen that kind of either challenges that violence, uh, or not necessarily Battle Shonen, but like if a series is going to be kind of action oriented, I want that action to be serving the purpose of a theme that I am interested in. For example, Akudama Drive. Oh, that's such a good show. It's just <laughs> the best. <laughs> the best show. I don't know. Maybe maybe Attack on Titan has delved into things that would interest me. I just didn't really want to watch past the first season. And I really do prefer Vinland Saga's approach because it really looks take looks at that emptiness straight in the face. I feel like so many so many series that are anti-violence are still anti-violence through violence, whereas Vinland Saga is putting its foot down and saying, no, it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah, um, I and I think that, like, um, it's interesting because Yukimura explicitly said in a podcast, um, if you want a show that's violent, go watch Attack on Titan. <laughs> and he clearly has a huge amount of respect for that, for, 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 um, for uh, the manga cover attack on titan whose name is escaping yeah they're buddies they are in any case um i wanted to kind of pick up on like what you were saying about this idea of emptiness because i think that might bring us into more of the spoilerific discussion because i think the idea of being empty is really actually at kind of the heart of um where of thorfinn's big epiphany in season two um and i think what we're kind of try to do is juxtapose like Thorfinn's epiphany with like Canute's epiphany and try to understand like why do these two characters have them and ha- what they tell us um but yeah like when I think about Thorfinn's epiphany it's both like so spoiler part spoiler alert now um Thorfinn's epiphany really comes about because he doesn't have a meaning to his life anymore. Like the entire thing, the the entirety of how he constructed his life, right? Like I'm going to avenge my father is ripped away from him. (laughs) And then he is empty. And then he has to figure out like, okay, if I'm empty, like that emptiness is both like has a kind of nihilistic streak, but also has like this kind of potential to it. And I know like Annie, you've, you've described like, like his epiphany is like almost becoming like a a bit of a bodhisattva, right? Um yeah, I I mean, hmm, where do I start with this? I guess I should start by saying that I grew up culturally Buddhist. Um my parents grew up in the Tiang or Zen tradition in Vietnam and that's kind of what I was raised with. Um and since then, you know, like it's been a regular part of my practice. And when I was in high school, I attended a Japanese Zen Buddhist retreat for a week and really deepened my practice there. Um, so it's hard for me not to look at Japanese media without kind of seeing things through that Zen Buddhist lens um, or looking at, at the influence of like Shinto philosophy. And despite the fact that um, <laughs> season one, especially of Vinland Saga, really tries to look at things through Knut's like 
Christian orientation. To me, there's like a lot of underlying philosophy in the show that to me seems more oriented in Eastern philosophies. Um, So there's like a common Buddhist phrase uh, in at least the Mahayana tradition of emptiness is form and form is emptiness. And I think that season one really deals with this lack of distinction for Thorfinn between emptiness and form. Like he really is just a container for violence because he is only motivated by rage. Like I think he's a pretty one-dimensional character in season one because of that. And in that regard, that's how I see him as being similar to Aaron Yeager uh, from Attack on Titan. Like he he's formless. Like he just kind of has fit this mold of, of vengeance and rage and the narrative that's been given to him. Um, and then when that, that motivation's taken away with the death of Ascalad and, and moving into season two, I think he continues to be this empty shell until he's forced to confront meaning, which is that he, and this is why for me, there's so much payoff with season one. Like it looks like gratuitous violence in season one, but then in season two, Thorfinn's really tasked with, like, wow, those are all real human beings that you murdered and murdered brutally and murdered without care or cause. And there's no way for you to re- like meaningfully repent with them present. Right. So um, it's interesting how that like the, the consequences of being empty kind of come back to him in season two. And I think about that the show a lot through a Buddhist lens, despite the fact that it takes place in Europe and Buddhism is not a meaningful uh, concept for the characters themselves. I think it's meaningful for the Yukimura and how I'm thinking about it as a Japanese text. Yeah, I think that for me, I, I really latched on to this because I thought a lot about kind of if one like is going to move forward and create new meaning in one's life, it's almost like one has to kind of not empty themselves of the previous things, but it, like almost acknowledge that the violence was meaningless to an extent, right? Like, be able to come to a point of like letting go of certain things letting go of certain like values but not necessarily letting go of the past because I think those are two very different things and if anything like Thorfinn's epiphany like requires him actually to be in really intimate connection with his past actions um and almost have this like intimate relationship with all the people he's killed um, I think, like, one really powerful moment in the series, I think probably my favorite episode of the whole series, and I think I would argue probably most, many people's favorite episode of the series, is the moment where he kind of enters Valhalla, right? And he, um, yeah, like, he sees his past, and then we see the kind of, we see, like, he gets this vision of, of course, all of these, this horrific mound of like zombified bodies that are the people who he's murdered right and as he's climbing up out of Valhalla which is a hell right they are clinging on to him and he has to resist the temptation to kick them off to push them away right I I, like I remember like that we were talking I think if we were talking about that Annie right like how like the meaning of that image. Um, yeah, I don't know. How did you, how did either of you interpret that image? Like, what do you think that kind of like meant? It did make me think of the Buddhist allegory where a spider, there's like a name for it and I can't remember it. There's a spider that puts down a thread of silk to rescue someone from hell. But when they try to climb up, a bunch of other people try to grab on and everyone gets dragged down. And I haven't really teased out what I think the meaning of that connection is quite yet. But that was kind of the first thing that I thought of. Because I do think that like Buddhist philosophy and Christian philosophy are at an interplay in the series in a really interesting way. Because, Annie, what you were saying about Thorfinn kind of being a bodhisattva and being formless, how that kind of contrasts with the very kind of, I don't know, Christian perspective that you should have a sense of purpose in life. And correct me if I'm wrong, my impression is that, you know, a bodhisattva is a positive figure that letting go of a sense of purpose is... Um, something to be achieved whereas with the christian lens 
or at least the Western lens, because I'm not Christian. Um, I wasn't raised Christian, but I did grow up in the U.S., um, someone on Twitter once pointed out that most people in just like you can be culturally Jewish or culturally so-and-so without still fault, like following the religious beliefs, you can be Christian, culturally Christian. And that's what most people in the U S are. And I accept that. And so this feeling of purposelessness to me is a, a negative thing from my own cultural lens. And so these ideas are kind of interplaying together. In this one, I guess, like, just to, to be clear, uh, Bodhisattva, at least in the tradition that I grew up in, um, is, like, the premise of Buddhism is that life is experience and life is suffering. Suffering comes from uh, attachment to things. The way to let go of your suffering is to let go of attachment. The way to let go of attachment is through the Eightfold Path. And that's essentially the the foundation of Buddhism, right? And through that, when you recognize all these things, you can become enlightened. Um, and bodhisattvas are people who have become enlightened. And if you believe in the, because, uh, you know, Buddhism is an outcropping of Hinduism, that if you, you can basically choose to forego reincarnation, um, because if you've let go of suffering and these things that attach you to the earthly world, you can move on and kind of reach nirvana rather than being stuck in suffering with everyone else. And that's exactly the story of the spider's thread is like, here is your pathway forward to a world without suffering. But bodhisattvas are like, okay, but like if I move forward and re release myself from the cycle of reincarnation without everyone else, like that, that's still suffering, right? Like my existence, recognizing that emptiness is form and form is emptiness is ultimately tied up to everyone else. And so I'm going to stick around uh, making sure that I am here moved by my sense of compassion, which is bodhisattva, um, to make sure that everyone is liberated from from samsara, from suffering. So yeah, you're, you're spot on. It's, it's a similar concept or uh, to sainthood in the Christian tradition, but rather than being uh, someone's savior, you're just like, nope, I'm just going to stick around because we got shit to do. And that's, that's yeah. So, but I think that you were totally right to pull out the image of the spider's thread. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Cause that, I'm sorry if this is what you're going to say and I'm, I'm interrupting because now I see that this is Thorfinn realizing that what these people who are figures in his life, cause like, you know, Bjorn is down there realizing that this violence that gave them purpose is keeping them in this eternal suffering. And so he is sticking around so that he can create a path, like a, a, a pacifist society and, and assist people um, in finding a sense of purpose outside of violence because viking society was very based in violence you know i'm not i'm certainly no expert but you know i know that like if someone gets killed you get revenge but then if someone kills someone you care about out of revenge now you have to go get revenge and there's this huge cycle and so thorfinn losing that sense of purpose because the person he wanted to get revenge on was was killed before he could get his revenge losing that sense of meaning has essentially freed him from that cycle. So now he is trying to help free others. And I think Ashkelad is a more complicated character than just being like this representation of Viking cruelty, because ultimately I think Ashkelad is the person who helps Thorfinn to actually like realize what he needs to do, which is really weird, right? Like it's not necessarily like Thor planted the seeds, but then Ashkelad is the one who's like, nah, dude, this is what violence is. <laughs> and if you're going to actually like live and escape this hell, here is how, right? Mm. And that's really interesting um, to me because he's also of course incredibly cruel <laughs> like in the first season he's like literally like murders an entire village um just so that he can like get food for his crew um which is not to say like have empathy for the genocide or no it's more about like here's somebody who maybe understands what he is doing right and how it is damning him it's very lady aboshi yes 
I know you have a soft spot for Ash. I know you have a bit of a soft spot for Ashkelad, uh, Annie. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I just think, you know, going back to this image in season two where, um, you know, Thorfinn's going through his nightmares again and is able to reach this moment where he's thinking about Valhalla. Um, I think it's really important to name that, like, Valhalla is was heaven, right, for Viking mm-hmm. society and, and for, mm-hmm. for Vikings in particular, that even though it's portrayed in a really grotesque way here, it was the greatest honor, right, to die in, in on, on the battlefield um, and in, like, really heroic ways and how countercultural it then becomes for Thorfinn to turn his back on this as, as the thing that he should be aspiring towards. Um, and I think that... Askeladd is just a really interesting character for that as a person who is half, you know, Danish and half Welsh or, you know, Danish and Welsh and how how deeply he detested his father and the society that he was brought up in because of how harmful it was to his mother um, and how he is deeply violent, but there's also violence that he detests, right? When he says he hates Vikings, I think that oftentimes that's tied to the violence against women and specifically violence against his mother that he witnessed. Um, So I don't know. I just think about him as like a really fascinating character as some kinds of violence he just accepts and other things he finds abhorrent um, and how that kind of informs ultimately his weird pseudo father figure status to Thorfinn. Um, and it's really interesting to me that this is really a figment of Thorfinn's imagination when he visits Valhalla, but he really has internalized these implicit lessons along the way for Askeladd for him to see it as this really grotesque, horrible place rather than a, a place he should be aspiring to fight towards. Yeah, I mean, Askeladd ha- is under no illusions about just how horrible the things that he's doing is, I think. Unlike many of the Vikings who have a very positive relationship to the violence they're doing and kind of think of it as this honor right yeah as you said well thorkel just loves to fight i find thorkel so fun i don't know why i find him fun fun. i just do he is fun don't get me wrong (laughs) but also i mean and yukimura has said that he is very childish um in his love of violence he doesn't really think about it he just loves to fight. Sure does. Or, you know, if you want to go with a less childish, lovable character, you know, Bjorn, Floki, etc., etc. You know, we could list a ton of characters. You know, this is violent world. You know, you have an Ashlad that, like, he looks at this violence and he's like, this is disgusting, but this is the way of the world. And I think that, like, to bring it back to that image of of Thorfinn pulling up all of those people and, like, refusing to kick them off and really being an intimate connection to the people he's killed. Honestly, some it was a tweet of yours, Annie, I think, that, like, actually really helped me to understand this image because I think you said, like, in one of your tweets, and it was completely unrelated to Vinland Saga, but it, but it really helped me think through Vinland Saga. It's like you said that, like, I think um, forgiveness is not... a a framework that you find particularly useful anymore, but compassion is. Um, And I think that Thorfinn, in a sense, like, is kind of acting out of compassion for both himself and the people who he killed, right? And, like, asking himself, how do I be compassionate to myself in this moment, even if it is not, there under no circumstances, is it really my place to forgive myself for what, for what I did, because it was so abhorrent. And, like, dragging those people up and refusing to let go of them is kind of a symbol of how he's not forgiving himself because he's not letting go of the past. He's embracing it, right, and holding it intimately to himself, right? And that's an important distinction because that it gives meaning to all the things that he does next, right? Like, he says, like, I must plant more trees than I cut down. I must protect more people than I killed, right? Like, if he, quote-unquote, forgave himself for the things that he did, then he wouldn't necessarily have that drive to do those, to do all that. Mm, I love that. That's so funny. Um, I don't exactly remember the context in which I tweeted that, but um, I definitely was thinking through themes of basically how I see forgiveness as a very Western and Christian concept. Um, 
And compassion is one that I've grown up with more as a Buddhist concept. And for me, forgiveness assumes a power dynamic that you can't really escape from, right? Um, For me, like someone has to have the authority to forgive you. So I guess I think about Mm. that in the Christian, the Catholic church with like, you know, indulgences for like, Mm. like dispensations, right? There's a lot of this, there's someone has the authority to grant you, you are forgiven for your sins, right? Um, God forgives you for the things you've done wrong, the the ways in which you've been wayward. And yeah, so I think that it, it ultimately kind of is embedded within a power dynamic that's hard to escape from, which is why I personally don't find it useful. Um, and also, I mean, I guess thinking about it from the, the space of being like a survivor of abuse and violence, like I don't have to forgive anyone. Like, <laughs> fuck that shit, you know? Like, um, that that requires again a power dynamic that I personally don't want to participate in which is why again abolition has been so valuable for me as a space and thinking about abolition through the framework of compassion has always been more fruitful than thinking about like is there space for forgiveness in abolition I don't think there needs to be so that's kind of been my take on things and I think that how you're framing Thorfinn in this makes a lot of sense like I do think similarly he knows there's no space for him to for like forgive himself, but there is space for him to live and keep living. And it is about changing his orientation and becoming a true warrior like his father and Ascalot said. Well, that does bring to mind, and now I'm pulling in the ed- educator piece, kind of changing attitudes towards making children say sorry when they mess up. Because I don't know how it is in your spaces, but in early education, we're really trying to move away from making children say sorry because sorry doesn't fix anything it just puts pressure on the other child to say it's okay it doesn't you know it doesn't require anyone to try to make amends and so instead we're having them ask are you okay and if they say no then what can I do to help and sometimes the other kid doesn't want anything they just want the other they just want the person who did whatever to upset them to just walk away from them and so the idea of forgiveness being a a western christian concept is interesting it's new to me i've never really heard that framing before it makes a lot of sense forgiveness and the power dynamic and the fact that it doesn't really fix anything. It doesn't really help anything. Um, you know, is is a concept that has been kind of very important in my life <laughs> recently. Um, so pulling it in here did, like, grab my attention. Yeah, and I think that <clears throat> for me, like, I think about, like, I think many of us have been in situations where we've done enormous harm to somebody, right? And then we've had to ask ourselves, like, Do they even want to hear from me again? Do they give a shit about what I feel or how sorry I am to like it even be worth it to reach out to them to reestablish a connection that they don't even want for us to like to for me to give them some apology that does nothing to make to help them. Right. I think I've often come to the conclusion that like it's not worth it and it's more worth it for me to just be a better person moving forward and like Mm kind of let that go, but also like hold that like holds that past that I have had intimately to myself so that I can always learn from it while also not being afraid of it or running away from it. Um, But like, I think that this is a very universal experience of like, what do we do when we're like, when we've harmed, right? (laughs) Like what is Mm -hmm. the appropriate response? And like, what is, um, what does it mean to actually make meaningful amends um in in a way that's not expecting the other person to have this kind of like affective like i think of it in terms of affect theory right like like everything's gotta be great we've gotta like come together as one when actually the tensions between us like often lead to the most interesting stuff right um so i don't know um I think this kind of also brings to mind, um, I think maybe, are we ready to kind of move on to talking about Canute and what happened with Canute? Because... Oh, boy. What happened with Canute? The opposite. Canute did the opposite thing. 
and I think this is where we're gonna start having the the Christianity versus Buddhism discussion get really meaty um, in ways that I don't know if I can fully contribute to. Um, what I do think is interesting is that Canute is a historical figure. I mean, a lot of characters in here are historical figures. Thorfinn is a historical figure, but Canute as an actual Norse king. I think Yukimura looked at this historical figure and said, how can I use this character and construct a biography for them in a way that interplays with this narrative that I'm creating uh, with all of these thematic pieces that I'm creating um, while still being historical. And so Canute moving from this very gentle, timid young man to just like, to this king who is just like, okay, I'm going to be a strong leader. And culturally, kings lead through violence. And that's just who I need to be is uh, interesting. I don't want to, it's not really kind of parallel, like perpendicular almost to Thorfinn. Yeah, no, I find Canute's epiphany really interesting because I think I I agree it's perpendicular to Thorfinn's I say that because he it's not diametrically opposed because a lot of the realizations that he has I think are directly connected to the thematic ideas of the series right like I think about the monk I forget his name but the monk talks like talks to and helps Canute understand this idea of like what is the difference between love and discrimination right and the the monk argues that the love that a parent has for a child or what the parent thinks of as love when they're or caregiver thinks of as love when they're treating a child with like protecting them, raising them with kindness, all this stuff actually is in some ways a form of discrimination because that's not, they wouldn't do the same for anybody else. And they would in fact probably be willing to kill for that child. Right. And so is that truly love? And I don't, I think that's very connected to Thorfinn's kind of realization that I have no enemies, right? That is, that is the foundation of I have no enemies. It's like love that is, that discriminates, that says that only certain people are deserving of love is no love at all, right? Or at least not love in a transcendental sense. But then Canute takes that and is like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to discriminate because I'm going to rule over everybody, you know? And make sure everybody has, you know, the kind of kingdom that I want to create. And I will make sure it is perfect through violence, right? And that is such a wild, like, way of interpreting that monk's words and, like, kind of twisting them into his own, like, kind of self-conception that I find really interesting. And the thing is that Canute before wasn't acting out of a, a sense of conscious cho- choice to to love, right? Canute before his kind of epiphany was just scared of his own shadow more or less he was gentle but that gentleness was born more of just fear of of the world around him and so the time came to make a choice almost in a kind of like coming of age sense he made and make the choice of who am I going to be? And this is who he chose to become. Whereas Thorfinn, when it was his, when it becomes his time to make a choice, when he finally finds some agency over his life uh, at the end of the second season, chooses to create a land through peace. I don't think it's just that he's scared of his own shadow. I think it's also that he's terrified of the ramifications of his power. Like he's terrified of what it means to lead through violence and terrified of the ram- how his actions and his words and what he does could impact the lives of so many people, right? Like, and, and like to, to kind of give an example of that, like in the moment where they're about to have that kind of discussion with, with the Welsh, right? And Canute's Canute's kind of terrified and isn't ready to talk himself to them. And Ashkelad's like, "What are you doing? Why you got to talk to them? You know yourself, right?" And and I believe it's Ragnar who's like, "No, the prince can't do that. That's not what he's ready for." 
he explains himself and says, like, if I mess this up, so many people are going to die, right? You know, and that terrifies me. And I think that the thing is that ultimately, I think that is correct. He should be yeah. terrified of that. That is not... And that he, the conclusion that he comes, like the, the difference between him and Thorfinn, right, is Thorfinn rejects the, those kinds of like using violence to achieve those ends, right? And rejects that power in the sense of I'm going to use violence to achieve this end. I need to find a new method, right? That's what how he describes it. It's the other method that I'm going to use every method I possibly can before I ever have to resort to violence. Versus Canute kind of resolves to be like, yeah, that's what it means to be a king. I don't think he was incorrect to be so like terrified of that kind of power because that po- sort of power, I think the, the series is very clear, is that sort of power should not exist because it's, it's not worth existing. And I guess that's where I think the show has kind of an abolitionist critique. I definitely think there's something to be said about, like, I guess maybe here I should mention that how I grew up understanding bodhisattvas, there are three different models. Um the first model is the model of the king, the person who's like, okay, like to lead people out of suffering, I'm going to take the lead and take charge and model. Um, and I think Canute kind of can fall into that realm. There's the shepherd, which is like, I'm going to push everyone through and kind of um, herd them to freedom and liberation. And then there's the ferryman model, which is I'm I'm coming with you. Like we're all going over um, and being released from suffering together. So that's something that I've also kind of examined Canute through. But I also think that he reminds me a little bit of um, I'm thinking of the Zhang Yimou film Hero, uh, which is, you know, pretty uh, particular take on the first emperor of China and how in order to unify the people and have a land of, of peace, he needed to kind of be incredibly violent. I think that's a clear model or a template for Canute and all this. And then there's also kind of just like the Christian notion of the savior uh, and of salvation. So I think all those things are in interplay when I'm thinking about Canute. Um, I think what it is is that he kind of, I think I agree with you. He was right to be afraid of all that power. And then I think what he realized was that he has been born into a position of profound violence, right? No matter what he does or doesn't do, people are going to poison and murder and kill in order to maintain the power structure that has led him to be born into this position in the first place. And that there's really no escape from it, except in his mind to completely absorb every single bit of power there could be in society and then kind of take it out with his own hand. But until that point, until no one else is kind of available to seek out the power that he innately has been imbued with, I think that that's kind of the approach, Um, which is why, like, I think there's so much respect when the two of them come together and like, they really truly do have a shared goal of, of like a utopia and a world without violence. But being the son of like a king and and the the most powerful man in Europe, I think Canute has envisioned it that like there's no way for me to achieve peace because my role is innately violent. So I'm going to be violent right now and as quickly as I can to reach that world without violence. Um, so I think it's interesting, given how they started, you know that image of like shaggy haired Thorfinn, just a vessel for rage and violence, and you know. Canute being this like supposed pacifist but not in like a principled way he's just afraid of the consequences of his life um, and how the two of them flip in season two but are still trying to to both make this path forward towards um, you know a utopia without violence I, I think like what you're saying is interesting because I think that there's been a lot of discourse lately on like narratives about people who are born into these positions of profound violence and power right like I'm, I'm gonna bring up um, something a little bit off the um, beaten path. But like when I think about like G-Witch, which came out in, if I remember right, the same season, right? Like Gundam, Witch from Mercury. There's a lot of people who were like unsure about like, okay, how on earth are they going to make it so Miarine, who was like born to be the heir of the entire military industrial complex. Can she like herself, like find a way to dismantle that from the position of being born into that, right? And ultimately what Miarine decides is I'm going to abdicate that position and let other people worry about dismantling this, but also, you know, I no longer have that power, right? 
and that's possible for her because of the society and like the, the culture and the space that she is well and i think the fight that she fights right in g witch versus i i think canute it's an it's very questionable whether canute that's even a possibility for canute right like that he could find any escape from this and i think that part of what there's there's villain saga is really about is like all these different people who are trying to escape that kind of life like thor's tried to abdicate a life of violence and then was pulled right back into it by um by the john vikings um but you are not allowed to abdicate a life of violence in vinland saga in most of like if you are born into that that is what you're going to do just gonna add that just makes me think of the um the inherent tensions, I think, in education, um, when folks from outside of a, a community, particularly like a community that has been really impacted by structural racism and structural violence, like, yeah, like many people, like, it, like people have this like utopic fantasy of what abolition is supposed to look like. But when you actually are trying to live and breathe it in a prefigurative way, and you look at these communities, many people are not allowed to abdicate from violence. Like, and I think that's just something that I think about a lot when I'm trying to actually interact with communities and be mindful of the ways in which I've grown up, the ways in which I've learned, and the, and the choices that are actually afforded to people, um, given just kind of the way society is structured around them. You know, growing up, seeing narratives about gang violence it's so easy from the outside from from my you know white but not wealthy but not impoverished background like kind of on the borderline between working class and middle class and be able to look at it and say well just don't why would you even do that why would you join a gang um why would you choose that life life of violence without considering the environment that is creating this condition these conditions where people feel like this is the life that they need to live whether they are choosing it out of necessity or you know whatever or um that's kind of what what comes to mind for me about whether or not Wanting, saying, well, we want to end violence, but also having to take into account the material conditions that people are living in that cause violence and can perpetuate the cycle of violence. So I think that brings us to kind of like Thorfinn's idea of nonviolent resistance, which I find in the, the, in whether that fully aligns with the mangas, which I think is a question. I don't think necessarily that Thorfinn is the, the mouthpiece of the mangaka entirely although i do know the mangaka has said that he hopes that after people read his manga they are embarrassed anytime that they even consider being violent (laughs) and that they find violence embarrassing um but yeah i'm curious what you all make of kind of thorfinn's um view of how to resist violence um Annie, did you want to kind of get us started with that? Because I know that you're really, like, you feel like, you, I, I know you've talked to me a lot about, like, being really influenced by Fitch Not Han and his anti-violence work. And I think there's a lot of parallels between Fitch Not Han and Thorfinn's philosophies. So I'm curious if you could speak to that or or just generally what you think of Thorfinn's idea of nonviolence. Yeah, um, that's a, a great question. I mean, I think that it's important to remember that Thorfinn, as framed by the narrative, is like a baby nonviolent practitioner. You know, he's literally spent the first 20 years of his life only knowing violence as a means to live. And despite how meaningful and impactful his enlightenment is, right, of, of the path forward is through compassion and continuing to live with the sense of compassion towards nature and people and himself. Um how to achieve that world is is still just as new to him as it is to anybody. And on top of that, he doesn't have anyone living to um, really learn from other than just kind of observing. Although I do think about, I think his name is Ferkel, the the father of the slave owner, right? Kato's father. Um, So I think about him in terms of just like what he models as someone who um, 
could be a slave owner and has kind of chosen to abdicate that and work the land and stuff. So I think there's a lot to learn from his character. Um, but with Thorfinn and nonviolence um, and Tikyakan, I guess that, again, a lot of this is just kind of Zen Buddhism and thinking about <laughs> recognizing that all of life is suffering and we can only just be mindful of ourselves and the impact that we have on the world. Um, what is there to say about Technikan? I read a book recently about Technikan's partnership with um, Martin Luther King Jr. They kind of corresponded across letters and were really respectful of each other's work. And, um, you know, uh, the idea of a beloved community is something that Technikan had continued long after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Um, and I think there's definitely parallels there between that and Thorfinn, this idea of like a beloved community. And I think that Thorfinn really is trying to create the idea of it after meeting Einar and Arnide. Um, but I don't know. I'm just kind of rambling at this point. He's a baby, I think, and he's, he's learning. And I think there's a stubbornness um, because he makes his first mistake when he fights Snake, right? Um he ultimately isn't able to save anybody. He also harms Snake in the process. He also is scarred from himself. So he kind of knows like, okay, like I can't move forward fighting the same way that I did before. So, but I think it's also something that he misses in and of himself when it, we get to the final, um, you know, the, the trial of the hundred punches in order to be able to meet Canute. Like I'm like, bruh, like, of course it's amazing that you yourself don't, land a punch on um you know the other person and that is such a, a beautiful and profound approach to nonviolence. but in some ways that only came because of the years of experience that he had right he had to have a ton of experience knowing how to move his body and how to take a punch over and over again and so I think it's it's pretty profound to me how he takes his years of experience of only knowing violence and is able to turn that on its head um, I haven't read the manga, but I'm anticipating that there's going to be more moments like that going forward. And I won't be surprised when I think that his stubbornness about nonviolence also has its shortcomings because I think that Canute does make points about how they live inherently in a violent society and structure. And there, there are just going to be times in which you can't advocate from violence. So I'm really curious about how that's going to play out. Yeah, and I think that Einar himself, like, Einar is an interesting character, too, in that regard, because Einar is not, um, I don't think Einar is as committed to nonviolence as, as Thorfinn is, <laughs> at all. No, Our Einar, I think, is more of a personality thing. He's just a gentle boy. <laughs> I don't think he's, he's, he, he chooses nonviolence so much as nonviolence chooses him. You know, uh, it, a little bit like Canute, um, where he just only with Canute, it was coming from fear, whereas Einar is just violence just isn't who he is. Um, but he does like fight those guys, the, the, the retainers, right? Mm hmm. Yeah. And like, oh, the, yeah. And like Thorfinn has to pull them back multiple times from straight up murdering people, right? <laughs> yeah. And like I think, I mean, that the, he also tries to murder Thorfinn. That is true. true. But he he can't go through with it, right? Is the interesting thing. Like he he mm -hmm. he can't go through with it, and they can't remember whether that's because Thorfinn stops him or because he just decides it's not what he wants to do. But I also think that Einar represents like this kind of justified rage, right? Mm -hmm. At the violence that he's experienced. Uh, and and I don't think that the story is... There's moments where there's very purposeful framing of the, in the series that parallels him and um, Bjorn, right? Like, you see the, you see the like, kind of whites of Einar's eyes when, he's about, when he wants to murder somebody, and that's all you see, and which is very clearly supposed to kind of symbolically represent his being lost to violence in that moment, right? But I also don't think, like... There's also moments where his violence and his standing up for himself, I think it's ultimately celebrated. Like the moment where Thorfinn is having his kind of like dream sequence and I, while simultaneously Einar is like trying to beat the retainers in a fight. 
I if I remember right, I don't think that like this show really comes down on Einar for fighting back against mm-hmm. in a justified way, right? Yeah. I think and I mean because I'm not a total total non-violence person, you know. I'm not I either at all. <laughs> I personally I personally believe that sometimes talk shit get hit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes a child punches another child and all I can say quiet maybe quietly to myself, maybe quietly to another teacher, not directly to the child is fuck around and find out. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm definitely <laughs> sympathize more with with uh Einar in these uh in these moments. And I think that is just kind of very natural sort of human response to certain things. Um and it would be overly idealistic even if Yukimura does want to is bringing in a philosophy of nonviolence into into his story it would be overly idealistic to come down on a character for feeling that kind of violent rage in moments yeah i mean i think of bell hooks's book killing rage right and like how she talks about how that rage can be redirected into meaningful like organizing um I also think about things like Wretched of the Earth, right? And the history of militant resistance and violent, you know, Mm -hmm. overthrow of colonization and how important that that history is and whether that, how that functions as kind of a counter narrative to what Vinland Saga is putting down. I mean, I... I, I personally don't agree with the idea that like violent nonviolence is necessarily the best strategy to end oppression. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of a, I, I'm kind of a hardline <laughs> anarchist in the sense that I'm like, yeah, no, um, eat the rich. I, it's, it's not. And um, I think that what's really like the confrontation with Canute is particularly interesting in that regard and that, I am not at a certain point. I'm not really sure what to make of, you know, this kind of sense of like mutual respect that like Thorfinn and Canute have, right? Is one partly because Canute knows Thorfinn from all of the years that Thorfinn was being violent, right? Mm-hmm. And then and then like th- there's this kind of sense that Thorfinn is appealing to the moral precepts of the oppressor, right, to fight the oppression um in that moment right like and i don't think that works like just if i'm being real here so yeah asada shakura said like nobody in the world nobody in history has ever gotten their freedom by appealing to the moral sense of the people who are oppressing them right and i i think that i think that a lesson that thorfinn is going to have to learn is that a lot of the people who he's going to be confronting right and fighting back against are people who he doesn't have that connection to that he has with Canute, right? Are people who will not give him the time of day just because he took a bunch of punches and in fact might actually just laugh at him and be like, haha, you took a bunch of punches. And that's the and that is one of the dangers of nonviolent organizing is that you put yourself in a position where you are so vulnerable that you're actually increasing your vulnerability, right? Um so so I, I'm very I have a lot of different feelings about like this show's kind of engagement with nonviolence, but I, even as I adore the show, um, I, I, yeah, I, I'm curious what you make of this question, Annie, because we've we've talked a lot, you know, off uh, off the pod about like the like ideas of nonviolence and like abolitionism. So I'm I'm curious like what your take on all of this stuff is. <laughs> I don't know how I would take yet, but I think that fiction is absolutely the place to explore the kind of limits of nonviolence, but also the potentials of nonviolence. Um, I attended a conference just this past week, and the ending, the closing keynote was a man named Daryl Davis. Um, 
Gerald Davis was uh, Chuck Berry's pianist for about 32 years. And um, he's kind of known outside of that role as a musician for being a quote unquote clan whisperer. So he has spent a good majority of his life um, getting to know members of the Ku Klux Klan as a black man himself, attending clan rallies and in doing so has been able to basically deprogram like I think over 200 clan members. And it was just very fascinating to listen to him talk because I think he absolutely does believe that you can appeal to people's hearts and minds, but not through persuading them, just through simply understanding them. And I I, I was really blown away by how principled he was um, in really speaking to trying to look for common understanding when there is one. And he was also really clear on what you need, do what you need to do when there is not common understanding, right? So he was like, you know, I've definitely had to put people in the hospital and, you know, you know, defend myself and defect, defend my family. Um, and sometimes it totally is impossible, but he basically said that every opportunity for conversation Every missed opportunity for conversation is a missed opportunity for reconciliation. Um, and as someone who literally like shows up to clan rallies, like I was like, wow, that is really profound and challenging for me, right? In terms of what we can do on a day-to-day basis. Um, so I think about that with Vinland Saga. I think similarly, it's like, okay, when you're living in this profoundly violent world, I think it's really important to see how far nonviolence can go. Um, and see creative ways in which it is possible because I think given how conditioned we are to violence, I think that what happens is most of the time we underestimate when nonviolence is not the answer. Like I think that we kind of preclude ourselves or or prematurely foreclose opportunities when there may still be an option. Um, So I think that that's important coming from Thorfinn, even if he kind of stubbornly goes in the other direction. I think it's really important to see in in narratives nowadays. Yeah. And I think that like, like this gets out another thing I was thinking about with regards to the show is like, to what extent is that, that, that strategy, if he alone does that, that's not going to take down the clan, right? Like that's not going to just like, and for every like 200 people who are deprogrammed, there's probably a whole bunch of people who are being, you know, reprogrammed, if that makes sense. So it's like, but so, but so it's like this kind of tension between those 200 people, right, are probably going to have a lot better lives because they're not radicalized into this horrible, horrendous ideology that harms everybody, right? And probably the people around them are going to have better lives for that, right? It doesn't not have an impact, right? It has a meaningful impact in those people's lives. But in terms of the systemic, like, systems that produce racist violence, right, are these individual modes of nonviolence resistance necessarily like productive? And I, I, I think that um, when I see like the work of people like Martin Luther King, of course, you know, and the history and SNCC and the history of nonviolent resistance, that kind of points to a more collective response and a more collective strategy, which I think Thorfinn is starting to move towards in his idea of like this kind of creating this beloved community and utopian idea together with other people. Um, and I think that his, you know, act of taking those punches was, pro- you know, if read charitably and, you know, thoughtfully is ideally a step in the direction of being able to, and now I'll probably be able to have this space where I can and security where I can be able to do that collective work. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot, there's a lot to talk about with this show. Um, we're going to go ahead and put a pause here. Um, but before we do, do we do we have any last kind of thoughts on the show's engage on the show Thorpe and Canoe, uh, like nonviolent resistance? Before we wrap it up, I'm a little sad we didn't get to talk to Leif because I think Leif is an interesting character in this discussion as well because he is a nonviolent figure in a society that privileges violence. And he is sailing around not for conquest, but just for exploration. Um, And he's going around trying to find this kid. And the love and discrimination conversation would have tied in really well with that. But we're out of time. Don't worry. We can talk about that next week when we talk about abolitionism. Because Leaf is a really interesting character when we were thinking about abolitionism and like... 
Okay. How a person resists that, uh, resists enslavement, right? Or slavery, right? Um, yeah. Any, any last thoughts? Um, not exactly a last thought on this one, but similar to Caitlin, something that I'd love to talk about in the next segment is just digging deeper into um, violence against women. Uh, and how that ties into these narratives around violence, nonviolence, and slavery. Um, I think that Arnide and how that's, there's just a lot to say about that in season two and how that relates to the the physical violence that is so upfront and center in season one. Mm -hmm. We will definitely talk a lot about Arnide next week because next week we're really going to be digging into this kind of idea of uh, Vinland Saga is an abolitionist show and like what Vinland Saga has to say about slavery and um, resistance to slavery. Um, very excited for that. Um, and with that, uh, I say let's wrap it up. Um, so this has been Chatty AF, the Anime Feminist Podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to our uh, to a podcast on Apple Podcasts or uh, SoundCloud. You can also rate and review us. We would that really helps people find us. Um, if you really like what you heard, please subscribe to our Patreon um, or give us a donation at Kofi. Um, we have a great Discord that you can join um, if you want to, you know, have more conversations like this one um, or just talk about uh, fun things. It's a great place, I promise. And um, you can find us. Um, on various social media sites, uh, we are still uh, on the website formerly known as Twitter at, uh, at Anime Feminist. Um, and we have um, a Tumblr, a, um, I believe we, we have a Mastodon, right, Caitlin? Yes. A Mastodon, uh, a Blue Sky, um, and now a TikTok, which uh, I need to go make a video for. So, um, come read our skeets. Yes. And with that, thanks and see you next time for part two.